Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hello, Michelle. (laughs) Hello. Coming up on today's show, Rebecca Black is officially back and so is Aziz Ansari. And later, how do we feel about women photoshopping their bodies to be larger than they actually are? But first, Zara, do tell me, how is your week? Um, I will be interested in your response to this. How was my week? The week was generally quite good. It was a bit of a, how do you say, sloggy week? Sloggy week. Do you think that's a way to define a week? I don't know. When you feel like you're in a bit of a slog. I feel like I woke up every morning this week without knowing what day it was. (laughs) Yeah, it was absolutely one of those weeks. It's also one of those weeks where we are recording on the weekend, though we always record on the weekend. But I have had four shots of coffee before recording this. And you usually ban me from having one shot of coffee before (laughs) recording them because A, I shake, B, I cough, and C, I talk too fast. So this will be a ride. Um, Generally, though... I can't wait. (laughs) Neither can the listeners. When my mind gets a bit frazzled, though, and my mind felt a little frazzled this week because we were kind of between a few things, and when I'm jumping between things, I feel like I might explode, which is, like, mildly hyperbolic. I try to go and buy a book. I walk myself to the bookshop because the bookshop is warm and quiet usually. How wholesome of you. I know, and I buy a book and I walk home. I did that. I bought a great book, which I'm halfway through, which is Flashman is in Trouble, which I recommended in the newsletter this week by Taffy Bredessa Ackner. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to give it to you. But I took myself to the bookshop. And can you understand the fatal flaw in taking yourself to a bookshop in the middle of fucking school holidays? Not fun. Not fun at all. (laughs) So there was that. The second thing that I want to recommend, not just that book, is um, a a thing that I found. Oh, wow. That's descriptive. (laughs) Do tell us. It's going to be the world's most (laughs) articulate episode. Unroll Me. Have you heard of Unroll Me? No. What's that? My emails have 2,000 emails in them because I accidentally find myself subscribed to everything on the internet. Ah, yes, including the Shameless uh, Podcast Community Newsletter. I love the Shameless Newsletter, though, (laughs) because it's mine. (laughs) But Unroll Me was this thing that I found online where they 
they unsubscribe you from they they go through your emails work out all of the things you're subscribed to and then you just click unsubscribe to all of them i was doing it this morning and i felt so empowered so that was the second thing is not it, sponsored is it bad that i've gotten to the state now where i have one email address which is just for all oh, the spammy newslettery emails that i never check and i i could check how many emails are in there right now i think it'll be beyond ten thousand. but that's the thing this was my spammy email and i was getting annoyed because i was all of my like <laughs> online shopping was getting lost in the spam yeah. and it was really frustrating me <laughs> so i unreal rolled it and I'm going to merge it with my work email and I think I'm going to do some like email admin in the next few days. I have 16,093. Exactly. <laughs> I actually would love to know how many people have a spam inbox where they deliberately just use it for spam. On another note, do you know how many email addresses I have? Six. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's absurd though. The other thing that I did want to raise about our weeks is that Michelle tried to crack the same joke twice. And when I say Michelle tried to crack the same joke twice, last week we came on here and spoke about your ranking system of oh, frozen yes. finger food. You tried to do it on Friday night with chocolate bars and I've never seen something <laughs> bomb more. There's what do you no, mean? There's didn't no, it bomb? It absolutely bombed. Uh, no, it didn't receive a positive response, but it received a big response, which is That's I would a bomb. call it success. No, it's success. I would you can't call it redefine success. Zara, the controversial food hierarchy is going to be a weekly installment every Friday night when I'm drunk. The issue with the chocolate thing is that you put bounty very high and like bounties can get in the bin. I love bounty. What else did you put really high? Uh, I think my top spot went to Picnic and Snickers. I feel like they're the same kind of chocolate bar. Picnic and Snickers. Okay. Incorrect. I literally Googled this because so many people came to me and said that's a shit chocolate bar. It was voted the world's most popular chocolate bar. Yeah, but I feel like that's an American thing. Americans do things differently if we're talking locally <laughs> you know what america I will, <laughs> you just rolled your eyes and weren't even gonna acknowledge that point i will actually give a little hat tip to you i feel like americans are more obsessed with peanut butter than australians 100 percent peanuts and peanut butter like it's fact it's science <laughs> i've just created it out of nowhere the thing that riled me up the most was not necessarily your position of the crunchy because the crunchy takes spot one to eight it was your crunchy shit it's it was your acknowledgement as for why the crunchy was down there and it was because you had a bad experience with your teeth this is a no. taste thing you said it's it's bad I had a bad experience with it, so it can't go there. No, I just said it's too hard on my teeth. It's not like I broke my teeth eating a crunchy bar. I just don't think the consistency of honeycomb – I can't believe we're doing this again. I know. I don't think the consistency of honeycomb is – good enough in Look, that you have one area to normally to the left side to be honest which yeah. is like really nice to eat and sweet and fluffy and good and then the right side is so solidified you may as well go into your garden and pop a rock in your mouth <laughs> this is a common criticism of the crunchy and this is something that i've been forced to defend much of my life <laughs> like this is the one thing i've been forced to defend. this is the hill you choose to die it on it's absolutely because the way i see it and i genuinely should be crunchy's biggest ambassador because i think i've had a crunchy day in my entire life is the reason that you love the soft texture, the one that you can kind of both suck and chew at the same time, which sounds so fucking weird now that it's out of my mouth, is because of the hardness, the juxtaposition between the two textures, right? Right. The reason you love one side is because the other exists. Okay. It's why you love them both. Are you done? I think so. How was your week? It was great. I mean, the food hierarchy, I'm not going to lie, a lot of DMs. Like, I've never received more DMs than I have when I'm doing these food hierarchies. And people are mad. I love how your DMs explode when you talk about food and mine. It's just when I talk about my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Yours are all from that Love Etc. Yeah. episode of mine are just talking about the legitimacy of crunchies being placed at number nine or whatever they were. Um, my week was good. I actually have had really, really bad asthma all week. And people with respiratory problems will know this, that a great way to 
I guess, alleviate the symptoms of asthma or different lung issues is to drink coffee. There's something in caffeine that I'm not going to give the medical explanation. Google it. It's I a legit thing. I was going to say, are we going to do this? Yeah. My sister's a medicine student and she, every time it happens, she's like, have you had a coffee? It really helps. Da, 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 da. The problem with this means that I'm drinking probably probably six coffees a day mm. at the moment and well into the night because when the air pressure drops, my asthma gets really bad in winter. So I'm staying up until about 2 a.m. at the moment. Like last night, I got barely any sleep at all. I am just wired on coffee all day, every day. So I'm hoping for my lungs to get better. Apart from that, I am increasingly embarrassed by my own car. I've told you guys before about how shit my car is and how I really need a new one, but it's begun sounding like a machine gun when I lock it, like when I use the electronic lock system when I'm walking away, which sounds much fancier than what the car deserves. Something's broken. Something's broken and then it locks a hundred times really loudly. Like I've actually seen people walking past. It sort of spasms a bit. It spasms. And I had a neighbor the other day run up to me as I was walking into my apartment to be like, something's happening to your car. And I had to explain to him that, no, that's just how I live my life at the moment. And that's (laughs) just something we're turning a blind eye to. (laughs) Yeah, I do this all the time. In fact, my car is absolutely due for a service. Oh my God. We often talk about car servicing on this podcast in the vein that we never get our car service. Shameless. terrible unsafe we should get our car service i feel like yours is due because mine is is. due. yes july yeah yeah i think it was 145,000 kilometers and my 144 so i choose to go for the one where i haven't hit it yet which normally is the kilometer which apparently you're not supposed to do it's whatever not at all meant to do that oh my god this is such a case of ignorance is bliss but it's not bliss when your car breaks down should we get into the show uh you didn't ask me for a recommendation but that's fine do you have a recommendation (laughs) extremes from vice media it's a podcast oh i saw it was featured this week yeah it's really brilliant it's top of the podcast charts at the moment one thing i will say is i don't like my podcasts being interrupted by ads for other podcasts i know that when there's like a distinct gap between segments it's fine to put it there but there is this weird thing with this particular podcast where they're halfway through telling the story and all of a sudden it gets interrupted so they can tell me about another vice podcast that I need to listen to I'm like hang on do they not intro the ad it's just like not enough there's not like a music break or anything it's kind of like the narrator stops and goes anyway you should hear about this other podcast from vice and it's like hang on I want to get into this podcast first that said Very, very interesting. They've got the stories of some incredible, fascinating Australians. One of them who's not so incredible is an arsonist who is lighting bushfires while working as a firefighter. Another is a man who woke up from a coma speaking fluent Chinese. I really, really highly recommend it. I think the interviews are fascinating. The stories are fascinating and they are extreme. So it's a great name for the podcast. I'm going to go check that out. Can I recommend one more thing before we actually get into the show? This is the longest intro we've ever had. We keep saying that every week. I think we just like talking about ourselves too much, which ties into my next recommendation. On the thread where somebody posted your chocolate hierarchy, I read the best comment I've ever read in the Facebook group by someone called Liv Morrison. And I hope Liv doesn't mind me quoting her first and last last name. <laughs> she said, Michelle Andrews, the success of the podcast is going to your head and you are losing your mind. I recommend going and liking that comment. <laughs> How many likes does that have? It only had 21 when I screenshotted it. So can anyone find that? Just use the search bar in the Facebook group and go and like that comment. Thanks to the 20,000 people who are now in there as well. I know 20,000 is huge. We are still a two-person moderating team, which is a funny and wild ride. Yeah, be gentle on us. We are trying to get to everything as soon as we can, but keeping 20,000 people... I'm imagining you and me at a party where there are 20,000 people and you and I are the only organisers or people... like No, we're the only sober ones. Like, we're the desies. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fire Festival and it's just you and me keeping it. 
Under- you stop that. You keep doing that. Nobody posts about their shit cheese sandwiches <laughs> on Twitter. Anyway, we are starting today with Rebecca Black because Zara, she is back and back in a big way. She is back in a big way. So Rebecca Black last month released a new single and it is certainly not the first time she's tried to release a single since Friday. So those of you might remember, and when I say might, I mean should, mm. remember Rebecca Black as the singer of Friday. Michelle is going to very generously do a little rendition for us just to sort of like actually remind will. us. I actually wrote down one of the lyrics. I hope people remember this. Yesterday it was Thursday. <laughs> Today it is Friday. We, we, we so excited. excited. We're going to have a ball today. Tomorrow Hold is on. Saturday. Hold on. Sunday you're comes not even, afterwards. You're using, the you're using the lyrics, but you're not even doing it to and the tune. And then it leads into, it's Friday. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you're really going to burn my ears now. You weren't using the tune. No, but that part doesn't really have a tune. Have you listened to that part of the song? Not in about seven years. Regardless, it was 2011 that that song went viral, which feels like a long, long, long time ago. It was eight years ago, Mm. if my math serves me correctly. (laughs) Well, I remember being in high school when this came out and I remember jumping on the I Hate Rebecca Black and I Hate Friday bandwagon like the entire world did. I mean, if you go and look at this on YouTube, it's had over 100 million views and the dislike button has been absolutely abused by almost everyone everyone who's watched it. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And she was just 13 at the time. So, and I think the reason it went viral is A, because the lyrics were fucking absurd. Like it was, they were pretty funny. What, you mean Sunday comes afterwards <laughs> isn't genius to you? It's like, which which seat do I take in this random convertible <laughs> that's pulled up out of my house that I can't drive? It was auto-tuned to the max as well. I think Rebecca Black sort of on, like we say, this comeback tour because of this new single and did a great video with BuzzFeed about the experience going back into what it was like to go viral. It was very much in the vein of John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm. And she spoke about how she was just 13 years old when this went viral. And I think for me, very embarrassingly, that was the most confronting factor because I thought to myself straight away, oh my goodness, she was so young and B... Of course she was so young. Like, she was a child. I had no idea that she was that young, though. I watched that thinking she was 16, older 17? than me. I thought she was older yeah. than me when I watched it. And to think that we were all piling onto a teenager, someone who was probably in year seven or year eight. She was in middle school she was in, in America. Seven. That is beyond fucked. When you watch the video, she does explain the context behind it in that it was kind of this small company that operated in the area where on school holidays, kids who are into music and into the arts could reach out to this company and get an amateur music video made that then went on YouTube. So she had friends who had done this before and she'd seen their videos and thought it was a really cool idea and begged her mum to let her do it. The idea of having that and having such a sweet, innocent project as a child and then having it shared with the world and written about in publications and just blow up in your face I just cannot imagine how traumatic that would be and watching her in this video it's very clear that it was the hardest time of her entire life thus far well she's only 22 Mm. so it's absurd to me that she's been through such a crazy time being only 22 I wonder if we all deliberately didn't dig for the context at the time because it was too easy a story and too easy a bandwagon to jump on I think at the time I had this sense that there was this deliberateness behind the video and granted I was only about 17 when it went viral but it I thought at the time there was this deliberateness where they had created it for the purpose of it going viral Mm. like who writes a song like this and who creates a video clip like this without the intent 
intention of it going viral. When you put it in the context of it being a personal project, like remember those people that you used to go to school with that occasionally did those photo shoots or something, mm. like those amateur photo shoots, it becomes that much more, I guess I keep coming back to the word confronting because I was incredibly embarrassed that so many of us jumped on that bandwagon. Most interestingly to me is that the viral fame led to bullying with black. I mean, maybe unsurprisingly because kids are cruel. She started failing most of her classes after that. She left a private school and was homeschooled instead. And she said in an interview with LA Magazine that a lot of days she would hide in her room and spend hours on end on Tumblr just listening to music because it was her only escape. Mm. Most ironically, of course, because it was music that landed her in this mess to begin with. Mm. I think it's so symptomatic, this entire story of humans not knowing the power of the internet just yet a music video like this and a story like this would not blow up in 2019 the way it did in 2011 I feel like over the last decade or so we've learned a lot about the impact of going viral particularly kids online I think this was kind of when social media was in its infancy and therefore it wasn't handled in the way that I think parents would handle it now for example they didn't take the video down even when the company said you should probably think about removing this and then it'll go away Rebecca and her parents decided to keep it up and I really highly doubt that that would be the same case in 2019 given that we know what we know I think it would blow up in the same way. I really do. I think that there's... About a child. Yeah. But I think the, it would be the pendulum that would be different. Yeah, true. I think the commentary would be different. I think we would all laugh at it and we would watch it and then everybody would be like, fuck. And then the commentary would come in, the op-eds would come in and then everybody would feel terrible. But I'm not sure if one thing can seize the internet today the way it used to. I feel like the internet is so much more fragmented. Our attention is so much more divided across different platforms. I don't think one piece of media can grip us in the way that Rebecca Black Friday did I still in 2011. Think, I still think it can. I absolutely, I, I agree in that we're, we're fragmented and we're all over the place, but in the same way we're fragmented, we're, we're also sort of channeling our energy into the same kind of platforms. We're not really on Facebook anymore because we don't trust Facebook. We're basically on Instagram and YouTube. I do think that there are instances where if this happened or something similar happened in 2019, it would seize us in the same way. I respectfully disagree because I can't think of anything over the last 12 months that has even paralleled the scope things of that what going viral no things about- go viral but not to the extent everyone knows rebecca black as we yeah. said when we intro this segment you, you would know, know who rebecca black is i can't think of a random person plucked out of obscurity who has been catapulted to that kind of infamy before. yeah and maybe you're right because for the sake of this conversation i actually can't think of one off the top of my head but i honestly think if i went back and did my digging there are names that have been plucked out of obscurity but it's absolutely <laughs> foolish of me to keep pushing this point when i don't have an example <laughs> to back it up i'll take this down as a w W for me and no, a absolutely. L for you. No, no, no. I'm still taking it down as a W for me. Regardless, I don't know how much we can take from this and how much we can learn from this because I still stand by the idea that these kinds of things can go viral and we still treat people terribly on the internet. And that's what's made me so sad. Fucking fight me. Fucking fight me. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you five stories from the rough and tumble of the news cycle. We can never ban the use of that saying now. Michelle, you have collated five of your stories. I'm ready. I'm here. My first story, Miley Cyrus doesn't want kids because, quote, the earth can't handle it. That is from ABC News America. Thoughts? 
Interesting. The only other person that I've heard talk about this is Will Anderson, which mm. is interesting. I know I've heard a few interviews who talks about how he doesn't want to bring children into the world because the world's too, the world is too fucked up. I'm also protecting him putting words in his mouth. <laughs> Sorry, Will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's definitely listening. I mean, in the yeah. lasting conversation episode, we accused him of making M. Rashiano pregnant and now I'm putting words in his mouth. There's something so weirdly dirty about the two things back to back. Anyway, I find it interesting. I mean, it's not the kind of attitude that I have, but maybe I just don't think things through. Do you think the earth can handle it? Are we um, just bringing our, our children into a broken world that's going to die and drown underwater? <laughs> Morbid. It's really interesting. I actually have an uncle who said this ages ago. Like when I was a little kid, I remember him telling me that he only wanted to have two kids because he only wanted to replace himself and his partner. And he thought it was irresponsible for people to have more kids than just two between a couple because of overpopulation. Well, we are overpopulated. True. On top of that, I actually have friends who have given this as a reason why they don't want to have kids, that the effects of climate change and the impact of climate change mean they don't actually want to bring children into the world. So I think this is a growing sentiment amongst millennials and amongst young people. No, I don't think it's one that should be dismissed either. I do find it incredibly interesting. I wonder if I don't agree because I actually haven't done enough digging into it. Like I haven't actually (laughs) dug into the world that I'm bringing my children into or my future children into, assuming that I have them. But I wonder where Liam Hemsworth, like I would like to get Liam Hemsworth's thoughts on this too, because what happens if one partner doesn't want kids because the earth can't handle it and one partner does? Interesting. My second story, Ed Sheeran admits to suffering from anxiety and struggling to leave the house. That is from news.com.au. You. I love it, Sharon. I love him too. I feel like he's been really wonderful in the way that he's shared things with the public, but not in a way where it's like a tsunami of information. He's just given us enough to know that he has struggled at times and he's gone through things and he shares it in a helpful way, but not in a way where it ever jeopardizes his sense of privacy. Well, there's that. And there's also never a sense, I think, that he's trying to paint himself as a victim or make people feel sorry for him, which is a hard thing to do when you want to talk about your struggles. I think this was a new interview that he's done recently promoting a new project. And there was a few quotes that were really, really interesting. One, around how he developed anxiety after becoming incredibly famous other ones about struggling to leave the house for days and days on end. And there was one quote that I found really interesting where he said, if I am eating in a restaurant now, I would prefer to have a private room because if I eat in the public room, I have people filming me while I'm eating my food. You feel like a zoo animal. I don't mean to complain. I have a cool job and a cool life, but I just want to avoid that. And that's one thing he kept coming back to, this disclaimer of, I don't want to complain. I have a cool job and a cool life. And there were sort of also stats in the piece that I was reading about how he earned $900 million last year from his world tour and it's a really hard thing to get your head around because I don't think you could pay me 900 million dollars to have the kind of fame that Ed Sheeran has and I don't think that he needs to consistently apologize for that I mean I might be in the minority people might disagree with me and say if you get paid that much you have to cop it but I don't think it's a normal scenario for anyone to be in I actually totally agree with you I don't think it is worth any amount of money to feel like you're a zoo animal in the world and that you have to be in a private room to be able to live your life as you want to live it. It's just small things. Like I know we always say celebrities can't go to the supermarket, but he said like I can't. I haven't bought myself a loaf of bread in years. Mm. I have only a handful of friends because I don't trust anyone anymore. Mm. And he talks really beautifully about his his new wife as well and saying like I don't know what she's doing with me, but I'm so glad that she's here. Oh, that's really nice. Um, it is really nice. It's also desperately sad and a good thing to remember because if I ever saw Ed Sheeran in public, I could bet my bottom dollar before running this, I'd run up to him, put my phone in his face and try to get a selfie, but maybe I won't now. Yeah. 
assuming I have a cross <laughs> I totally think as well it's really helpful to hear people with anxiety talking about the struggle to actually even leave the house because I think that's something we often discuss when it comes to depression and other forms of mental illness but I always appreciate other people who have anxiety like I do talking about it in this way because I think anxiety can be trivialized or put down to just feeling a bit anxious sometimes or feeling overly nervous when really at its worst it can be super debilitating and I've experienced that and hearing other people experience it and get through it is helpful and also I think there's a sense that it's also conflated with being high functioning mm. anxiety and in many cases in what Ed Sheeran talks about it's it's not always that mm. my third story one in eight men <laughs> I can't <laughs> get the best story one ever. in eight men think they could score a point off Serena Williams that is from Newsweek <laughs> sorry what drew my attention to this story was Chrissy Teigen tweeting it out it was a YouGov survey in the US where 12 percent of men in America thought that they would score a point of Serena Williams. Like, fuck me, dead. Who? Like, <laughs> fuck me, dead. Sorry. It's about, as much, it's about as articulate as I feel with this story. Like, can you imagine men looking at that question and thinking, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I feel like any man who's not a professional tennis player would score a point off Serena Williams is if she did a double fault. Yeah, exactly. And she wouldn't be nervous. So she's probably not going to double fault. She's not nervous about squaring up against these weasels. Can we get 100 men to play 100 points against Serena Williams and just see what percentage? 100 men off the street, just like your average IT consultant, maybe a taxi driver. Got any other jobs for me? <laughs> I can't think of any, <laughs> any other jobs. A podcast, <laughs> daily talk show, boys, if you're free, we'll get you in this. God, that is literally your microcosm of society. The daily talk show, boys, a taxi driver and an IT consultant. Bring me story number four. Team Sussex's demands for ever more privacy at Wimbledon are alienating even committed monarchists. That is from The Telegraph UK. A really interesting piece looking at the fact that Meghan Markle asked for no photos to be taken of her when she was watching Serena Williams play at Wimbledon and royal aides were kind of walking around and policing people who were pointing their cameras at her. There was a photo that went viral of a man sticking his phone in Meghan Markle's face. But the interesting thing about that was when people zoomed in on the photo after it went viral, it turned out he was just taking a selfie and was completely oblivious to the fact that Meghan Markle was right in front of him. A couple of things about this story. It's very hard to tell whether it was Meghan Markle's demands or whether it was her team's demands, whether it was just royal aides um, making decisions on behalf of her. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Secondly, old Mr. Selfie Mate in the stands of Wimbledon could have been a fast mover, could have had the camera in Meghan Markle's face being told off and quickly done the old switch to selfie mode, being like, what are you talking about? No, I think he's literally an oblivious dad and I love him He does not look like the kind of person, though, that is <laughs> a Meghan a Markle shit. fan. Yeah, yeah. If you have a look at the photo, it's quite funny. I don't know how to feel about this. I mean, coming off the Ed Sheeran story, is it that absurd to not want cameras that close to your face? Like, I think Piers Morgan came out and said, oh, Piers Morgan, Piers ha- Morgan. I know I'm quoting Piers Morgan, but Piers Morgan hates Meghan Markle first and foremost. And he said, she's in not so many words, she's an idiot. She's in a public place. There are cameras everywhere. There are people everywhere. Of course, people are going to take photos of you. But I don't agree with that line of thought as much. It's not that that you're in public and that you're being captured. It's that zoo animal mentality, I think. Mm. What do you think? I totally agree. I don't think we should expect anything from her. Just because she married into the royal family, I don't think we have 
ownership over her. And I don't think anyone should feel entitled that they can stick their phone in her face. It's just a bit like you already get enough Meghan Markle content. She is everywhere, all over the news, 24 hours a day. Let her go to a tennis match without feeling like she is that zoo animal like Ed Sheeran does. Okay, just to argue against us quickly because somebody has to in this context. (laughs) The other thing that was raised in an article that I was reading about this is that English taxpayers are paying $2.5 million for the refurbishment of her house. Yeah, that's nothing compared to how much money the royal family makes in tourism and everything else that the royal family generates for that economy. Yeah, I I don't really care about that point either. It was just the only one that I read that I was like, oh, that's interesting. No, every time someone brings up the cost of the royal family taxpayers, I just roll my eyes a bit because they make so much money for Britain's economy. And they also raise a lot of money for charity, but that's for another time. My fifth and final story, Goop Summit attendees feel scammed and the sky is blue. That is from Jezebel. What a great headline. Headline of the week. So the Goop Summit went to the UK. It did. And it cost... Now, there's a bit of discrepancy about the reporting. Nobody can get the figure of how much tickets cost. And I wonder if that's because there's a bit of secrecy around how much people actually paid for the packages. Perhaps. Some US publications were writing about it in dollars. So they said tickets cost $5,800. Some other publications wrote about it being £5,800. Yes. Well, I was seeing figures for up to £5,000, which is close to $10,000 Australian dollars, which is an absurd amount of money to go to a Goop Summit. Um, well, I mean, either whether it's $5,000 or £5,000, yeah. it is bloody ridiculous. It's semantics right now because it's too much money to go to a Goop Summit. It reminds me so much of our segment last week on the Byron Bay Murphy thing where it's like you, in order to live a good and well life, you have to be able to buy it. Mm, it's gross. I just think it's gross. I can't imagine walking around this summit. I was reading about some of the things they've got going on and it just sounds ridiculous. It's baffling to me that people with lots of money choose to buy into this pseudoscientific way of life. It's like you've got that much money, at least do something good with it. But isn't that definitional of having too much money? Like I always thought there's no such thing as too much money like there's no such thing as too much money but that is definitional of too much money if you're spending it on someone who's told you to stick a jade egg up your vagina i wonder as well if they were all super privileged women or if any women worked really hard and saved really hard or got out alone to go to a summit like this because they feel like summits like these and group communities like these are the only ways they feel i don't know whole I don't know. I'm going to generalize, but I'm going to assume it's only women of privilege who have time to think about this stuff. Like it's a time and energy thing. And I think priorities are important in this case. And if you're trying to think about whether you have money week to week or food week to week or a job week to week, as if you have time to think if you should steam your vagina. I know I kept coming back to the vagina thing. (laughs) I was actually going to say, how much money would you need to have to consider getting a yoni steam? It's a yoni steam, right? That's what she calls it. How much money would I have to have? Like as much money in the world, I still (laughs) wouldn't get it. Like I just don't get it. I would spend What's it, it supposed on, to do? I don't know. What is the benefit of a Yoni steam? Like the things that I would spend my money on before I spent on a Yoni steam. Like, what has know? to be I would, wrong for I would you to get a I would employ a full-time steam. foot massager, genuinely, <laughs> before I got a Yoni steam. I just steam. want to Google it. I just want to know what symptoms I should have if I need a vaginal steam. No, this is pseudoscience. Don't, don't push this. I, it doesn't say that I – it's just to rejuvenate. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think it's just sort of like a, a little bouncy, bumpy thing to make you feel good. <laughs> this article from Medical News Today has like a big warning up the top saying there are a lot of dangers involved in vaginal steaming, especially burning very delicate tissue. <laughs> There's nothing that makes me want to like crawl up more. How much would you have to be paid? Sorry, I know we're spending too much time on this. How much money would you have to be paid to do it once? Because I think this is a different question. 
I would have to be paid probably five thousand eight hundred pounds. Nah, give me a thousand and I'll be doing it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it wouldn't burn very delicate tissue. I can be bought cheaply. Is that all you've got for me? That's all I've got. I feel scared and violated. <laughs> if everybody in the Facebook group put in like twenty cents, that means I would steal my vagina. Oh my god. Oh my god, should we set up a GoFundMe? <laughs> If ever, literally, if everyone donates maybe 50 cents it's and we get 2,000 people to do it, yeah. is that good math? <laughs> is that even math? was the comeback tour that was bound to happen. Aziz Ansari made his return to the public consciousness after allegations of sexual misconduct shrouded his reputation and career, with a Netflix special making waves online. In the special, Ansari acknowledges for only the second time since 2018 the allegations, the story, and how he has supposedly grown since. Mish, how did you feel A, watching the special, and B, watching the apology? I really actually liked the special. I laughed a lot, but that's probably because I like Aziz Ansari's comedy and I've always liked his comedy style and I'm a big fan of Parks and Rec, as I've said on the podcast recently. I just find him hilarious and I think a lot of his content is really funny. The apology, I probably have an opinion that sits in the minority based on a lot of the reading that I've done this week. For anyone who missed this actual story when it broke in 2018, there was a babe.net story that kind of recounted one woman's sexual experience with Aziz Ansari. She said she felt coerced to give him oral sex and that he was putting her his fingers down her mouth when she didn't want him to and that it was the worst night of her life and she left in tears. Ever since then, it's been kind of this back and forth. Number one, because the reporting in the original story wasn't probably up to scratch to deal with such sensitive material, and a lot of people commented on that. Yeah, that was a big criticism of the story. This was like the one story that almost managed to derail the Me Too movement because it was the one point where everybody thought – we don't even know anymore. Like it separated people into camps. Like people who were already playing on the same team suddenly felt separated into camps, whether you, whatever side you fell on. Absolutely. And then number two, it kind of blurred the lines when the Me Too movement had been dealing a lot with sexual assault cases. The Aziz Ansari story brought in a discussion about bad sex, sexual coercion, and where the line is. And consent, And consent, Before we actually get into this apology, I am interested because I think the Aziz Ansari story was one of the most important things to come out of the Me Too movement, genuinely, because I think it was the story that everybody felt they had a stake in because everybody felt like they'd been in a situation like it, whether it would be man or woman. And for that reason, I think it forced a lot of people to reflect on their own behavior in sexual scenarios. Do you agree with that? Totally agree. Well, 51% of women say they've experienced unwanted sexual touching in their lives. So this is an area of life where more than half of us have dealt Mm. with it and experienced it. So this story, as opposed to the other stories where one in five women experience sexual assault across their lifetime, this involves a lot of us. And if it hasn't happened to you, it's probably happened to your friend or Mm -hmm. your sister or your loved one. Completely. Talk me through then your thoughts on the apology. I actually liked the apology. I think he copped a lot of flack for it. I think it was short and it was brief and it was at the very, very beginning of his show But I appreciate the way he spoke about it and the seriousness with which he spoke about it. I think it would be very tempting to crack jokes during it or make light of it or not tackle it at all, which is the easier option. I appreciate that Aziz Ansari got on the front foot 
admitted that it was a really dark time in his life and he felt terrible over how he made this woman feel. I also really appreciated the comments he made about discussions he's had with male friends since about looking back at their own dating histories and reevaluating the way they behave towards women. You probably don't agree with me based on your facial expression. No, I mean, there are a couple of things in it that made me think. The first was that when he did start on tour with this show in December, he didn't mention the scandal. So this was something that was very deliberately planted in the lead up to this Netflix special because he didn't start his tour with this apology and copped a lot of flack for it. So it was quite reactionary. The second thing is I might read a line from it and I say a line, but this wouldn't have gone for longer than a minute and a half. Would that be about right? It was 90 seconds. yeah. Yeah. And he said, ultimately, I just felt terrible that this person felt this way. After a year or so, I just hope it was a step forward. I hope I've become a better person. I I didn't hate the apology by any stretch. I felt a little like I had whiplash after it. I was like, oh my goodness, is that it? Like we're going on with the show now. I really appreciated how he sort of captured the audience with it and his tone was very soft. He was quite thoughtful and the, it was wrapped in this idea of it's it's made me be incredibly thoughtful about my decisions and my friends' decisions too. I think if I'm totally honest, I wish he said, I hate that my behavior made someone feel like this. I think it's really important if we're talking about public apologies that we recognize behavior makes people feel one way. We don't just create sort of scenarios in our head and emotions just come from that. But his message also said, I'm so sad to hear this. Clearly, I misread things in the moment and I'm truly sorry. So he he said that there was a communication breakdown. I think this is, what, this is what's really frustrating me. And before I say anything, let me preface it with this. I have experienced things in the past, which I will not speak about on this podcast because I don't want to in this format, but I've experienced this myself. So as someone who's experienced this, let me say I do not appreciate the vast majority of reporting on it or the way people are writing about it. There was a piece in The Independent by Alexandra Pollard. She wrote, Firstly, I felt terrible this person felt this way is the classic responsibility-shifting non-apology. What's more, there is no mention of the specific ways in which his alleged behaviour was toxic, uncomfortable and coercive. I find this hard and damaging to the entire thing because language like that is inappropriate in this circumstance. What do we, you mean inappropriate? No, from a journalistic point, there were two people in that room. He has not said that he behaved wrong. He said he misread her cues. He wasn't – the communication broke down. That was what he said and what he is stuck with the entire time. Yeah. I don't appreciate people coming out and acting like they were in the room, they knew what happened, there is a black and white definition here because the importance when we discuss sexual coercion or when we discuss bad sexual experiences is there is so much grey area. There is so much grey area and that's why half of women experience this across their lifetime. And when we try and treat this as it's black and it's white and he either behaved in a toxic way or behaved in a totally gentlemanly way, we ignore all the space between it. And there is so much space between it. And there is so much nuance to this. And it is entirely possible that Aziz Ansari, based on his original apology via text message and based on his apology in his stand-up special, still thinks he misread cues but never intentionally meant to coerce her. And I think both things can be true. She can feel like she was coerced and he can feel like he totally missed her cues telling him that. That's exactly the point, Michelle. That is 1,000% the point. So how did his apology not do that for you? Because I'm not saying that that was a non-apology. I I don't appreciate that it's called 
called a non-apology. I actually think I think we live in this world where there are people that are going to be unhappy with an apology wherever it sits. I don't think we live in a world where Aziz Ansari could apologize for this and it was going to settle the masses. Like, I don't think that's possible. But I think when we're talking about sexual coercion, I think we can call it uncomfortable. I think we can call it coercive. And I think we can call instances of sexual coercion toxic, for sure. It's about men understanding that even if they misread social cues, that is wrong too. Like, he understood that there was a communication breakdown and that's important that he recognized that there was a communication breakdown that he didn't make enough effort to read the scenario well enough and for that a lot of shit has gone down I think that really really matters like I I do think that really matters and I think we can call that uncomfortable and I think we can call that coercive and dumbing down or dulling our language around that is going to give men a lot of excuse with regards to how they handle these scenarios do you think that though I actually don't agree I don't agree with that because I don't think he as a person should have to take on these labels as to what other people are telling him his behavior was when they weren't even in the room. I think there are that's two all, people who know the story. That's all conversations about sexual assault and sexual harassment. But, this is, but hang on, sexual assault sexual and what's happened, well. but it's two different things. Of it course, is not I, the same thing. I and agree we're with treating that. it as if it's all the same thing. No, but we're still talking about allegations of sexual misconduct. And I 1000% agree with you that all of those things are not the same thing. And I think it's foolish for people to assume that they are or to lump people like Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein and Aziz Ansari in the same bucket. I flatly refuse that that's a helpful thing to do. I am just saying that I think language around what happened is fine because I think it helps other men work out behavior that's right and behavior that's wrong. Just because we weren't in the room doesn't mean that we can't have have a conversation about it. Have a conversation, but I don't like writers coming out and pretending they know or that it's objective. This entire thing is subjective and you cannot treat it with objectivity because it happens to 51% of women. But that doesn't make it right. Just because it's common doesn't make it right. It's happened to me. I'm definitely not saying it's right. 51% of women. Exactly. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that it does no help to anyone. So how do you want people to talk about it? In that, how do you want someone to describe that scenario? I want people to look at his apology, what he said, as a really productive thing. It is productive and helpful and good that men like Aziz Ansari are doing the difficult thing and coming out and saying this is a really hard time I made a woman feel terrible I've had really productive conversations with people I'm going to do better I hope I do better in the future what more do we want from him because we do not have to expect him to ascribe these labels to things two people had experiences in that room two people know what went on in that room nobody else really knows Grace had her story Grace can think what happened Aziz had his story Aziz can think what happened when we try and put labels on things where we didn't experience I think we need to because I think we need to make examples of scenarios like that so that men learn. I am from the camp, right? And I'll be interested about what you think about this. I think his apology was largely quite good. Like I quite liked it. I think if we live in a world where someone can't apologize for something and someone can't get better at something and we can't forgive certain aspects of things, we're going to be really fucked. That said, I liked his apology and still going to label that behavior coercive and damaging. Okay, that's fine. I think at the end of the day, men need to get better at reading women's social cues. That is the main problem here. Yeah. Women probably need to get better at voicing how they feel in scenarios like this. And they need to feel empowered that they can speak up and tell men exactly how they're feeling and feel like men will then respond accordingly. The The way forward is for both parties yeah. in a sexual One relationship. One more than the other though. One, of course. And I said that men need to do that more. But we need to get to a place where the more conversations about this, the better. 
and the conversations are happening. I feel like what Aziz got up on that stage and said was really productive. I'm happy that he addressed it when he really didn't have to. And I'm happy that we're having this conversation now because I don't think it's black and white. I don't think it's objective. And I think that we do need to treat it with nuance and subjectivity and encourage women to speak up when they feel coerced and encourage men to read the social cues that we need them to read in order to feel safe and like we're valued. Yeah, completely. I'm interested in whether you think he would ever have a career if he didn't raise this because I think he absolutely had to raise it. If he wants a career, he needed to acknowledge it. He would have been absolutely ruined. Louis CK's comeback, I don't think their crimes were the same, but for the sake of a comeback tour, let's talk about them here. Louis CK's comeback has been absolutely stalled because he hasn't apologized well. His jokes have been pretty average. And I think that matters. So I don't think there's a world where Aziz Ansari couldn't recognize this and couldn't apologize because I don't think his career could fly if he didn't. So I don't think it's some great big altruistic move on Aziz Ansari's part to say, hey, I did something wrong. It's twofold. I think he probably does feel very bad and I think he's probably learned a lot from it. He needed to get this out within the first minute and a half of the show for people to listen to the rest of it. I I quite liked Megan Garber's piece in The Atlantic yeah, about really this. Good, yeah. I think this is, seems to be the most widely read piece on this subject. And she says... In one way, this makes for comedy that is, as Right Now's title suggests, because the special is called Right Now, extremely true to its moment. To be alive right now is to often feel tangled and disoriented and caught up in the midst of things. And for me, that kind of nailed how I've been feeling about this. That cognitive dissonance that we always seem to come back to on this podcast does feel very of the moment in that nobody knows where to sit on things. We feel caught between our feelings and our thoughts. That's exactly how I felt about this Ansari scenario. I went into this special with my backup, completely with my backup, and I will put my hands up and say that because I felt uncomfortable about it because I didn't know how I was going to make sense of my thoughts around it. But I think that's so important for us all to recognize in that we are totally in a moment where things are tangled and things don't make sense, and that's okay too. Totally, totally. I think my overriding vibe after this entire thing is that the day after it happened, he apologized profusely via that text message. He's been apologizing ever since, and I think we need to be able to let men, particularly men who have only, this has only been one woman to come out again against Aziz Ansari and I think in myself if he had had multiple women like Louis CK or other comedians come out against him I would definitely view it in a different way but I think we need to be able to let men apologize in scenarios just like this one and let them grow from it and let them educate other men as to how to do better and be better. For sure and I think it's incredibly I think the special itself is incredibly manufactured and a tiny bit self-pitying and carefully curated too but if it wasn't I wonder if we would have more issues that it would feel kind of too frivolous and too poorly planned and I wonder if this is the lesser of all the evils like that's how I've tried to get my head around it in the last few days is there a good way out of this and if there isn't is this the lesser of all the evils the shame for me was clear I couldn't quite work out which is what I touched on in the start exactly what he was sorry about but there was something there and like all the rest of us too he wants to move on and I think so do we yeah I think so I think it's important to be able to accept people's apologies and accept that people need to grow and we need to let people grow and let give them that opportunity and for a man who has had one story come out against him about a bad sexual experience I'm willing to let him grow I think that's an important distinction to make in that I am not going to give the benefit of the doubt to many people but I will give it to Ansari and I think I've made peace with the fact that Ansari will come back and his career will be probably strong. I've also made peace with the fact as far as apologies go, this one was pretty okay. And I think I've also made peace with the fact I don't have to be totally okay with every single part of it. Like we can be skeptical and we can keep a watchful eye on him 
where he goes next. And maybe that's the most important thing we do because actions do speak louder than words. It will take a lot more from him in my book to fully paint a picture of a redeemed man, but I'm willing to give him that shot. Thank you, next bitch. In case you missed it, body positivity is having a real moment on Instagram right now. But one post this week from swimwear entrepreneur and influencer Karina Irby confused just about everyone. You see, Irby, a woman who spruiks the beauty of curves every day, had photoshopped herself to appear two dress sizes bigger than she actually is, telling her followers, I'm sick and tired of the extra small edit. Curves are beautiful too. Zara, how do you feel about women photoshopping their bodies to be larger under the veil of body positivity? Desperately confused. I spent a lot of time reading this before it was posted in our Facebook group wondering what I had missed. And I think Mm. that was the vibe that I could get off the thread that existed in our Facebook group too, in that people were trying to work out the meaning behind it. I think people gave it the benefit of the doubt initially, trying to work out what good it was doing, and then came around to the fact that maybe it wasn't a perfectly executed post in the pursuit of a better body positive life totally and for full transparency the post has since been removed or archived from Karina Irby's Instagram account because she did get so much backlash this segment by the way before I jump into my main point is not to target Karina I think it's more to look at the industry that she is a big player in and she is a big player she's got a million followers Uh, she's got a huge swimwear brand she has a lot of pull and sway and influence over this industry and I think we really need to look at the track that body positivity is going down What I think that post boiled down to ultimately, and this might sound a bit harsh, but it's what I honestly believe, is the pursuit of engagement and followers. I feel like people are increasingly putting posts out like this to disarm us and shock us and surprise us and go against the grain and do something a little bit different, not because they have the most pure of intentions, but because they're designed to get eyeballs and get likes and get clicks and get follows. It is that shock value thing. And we talk so much on the podcast about the how the algorithm is hard to crack. And I know this is an incredibly cynical point of view to come at, but I think we're both on the same page. And I would be interested to hear if other people are too, in that the fact that the body positive movement on Instagram has blown up at the same time the algorithm has been harder and harder to crack doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. It feels like an easy plug for engagement. And that's not to say that every single person that pushes a body positive movement online is in the pursuit of engagement. But I do think those two things are correlated. So many people have great intentions when it comes to promoting healthy body image and so many people are fucking it up. This Karina Irby post in particular is completely emblematic of how the body positivity movement and the body image movement has been completely oversimplified on Instagram. Totally. I do want to draw a parallel. So in the original post, which has now been deleted, she did write, everybody should have the same opportunity to be cool, trendy, fashionable, desirable, sexy, and pure goals. It really... That, that line really stuck out to me because it actually reminded me of a post that Jess Ray King, who is a beloved listener of the podcast, Yay, she's Jess a plus-size model and she's fabulous. She actually works in this space and is obviously doing curve modelling. She wrote on her Instagram in June that she has opened magazines before to see her body photoshopped to be larger. And she wrote, do we think photoshopping a model to be bigger is just as damaging as photoshopping them to be smaller? I still feel like it's portraying a hyper-unrealistic version of beauty. I also think it's unfair of me to be representing women of this size when they fight for representation already and I think that's it if 
Karina Irby is saying that everybody should have the same opportunity to be cool. Why not champion women who are actually that size? If we want to champion women's real bodies and what we really look like, why are we still using Photoshop? Like that just seems completely redundant and contradictory to me. Well, I don't understand the body positivity movement that encourages use of Photoshop because if we're talking about a body positivity movement, we're talking about celebrating bodies as they are in reality. And there's a complete lack of reality going on here. What else piqued my interest a little bit was the explanation after the post was taken down. And Irby wrote on her Instagram stories, if anything, the amount of noise it made and how many people took it the wrong way only goes to further my point about the double standards. It turns out everyone is okay with the rest of the world faking skinny, but they still aren't ready to deal with someone who looks real. I have a few issues with this. It's a pretty huge overstatement to say that people are okay with the rest of the world faking skinny. That's what the whole body positivity movement is pushing back on. Exactly. We're not. We're just lied to about when it happens, so we don't know we're celebrating when it's happening. Secondly, people had an issue with this post in particular because it was a photoshopped image trying to make a point about body positivity, which feels like the ultimate oxymoron. And thirdly, you can't talk about real bodies while literally photoshopping a body to make it unreal. Like, I appreciate the endeavor and intention, but the execution was so off. And I think if you are willing to make money off the body positivity movement, then you better do it right. Yes. And again, not targeting Karina. But That's a general want, point. Yeah, I do want to illustrate the weird dichotomy of things that are going on that are very contradictory here. Because Karina is also the founder of a company called Bikini Body Burn, which is basically 12-week fitness programs that are designed to give you this wonderful transformation. She also sells uh, resistance bands that are designed to train your bum and increase its size and its peachiness. Now, that's where I see a really odd distinction. The two things aren't really marrying to me that on one account, someone is speaking about curviness and embracing your body as it is and beauty at all sizes. And on another account that she also runs, she's praising clients for quote, going from 149 pounds to 135 pounds in her 12 week challenge. Now, I don't get this. I act like I actually am really confused about how these two things marry and how they make any sense together. How can you rally against thinness on one profile and on another profile champion people for losing weight after they pay you money. I don't think you can. I do not think those things can coexist at the same time. And I think you can love fitness and you can love health and you can talk about loving your body, right? I think when exercise is sold as wonderful for the mind and our overall well-being, that's a message I can absolutely get behind. That's the exercise that I also want to be a part of because that's what I use exercise for. But when it is sold to me as a challenge, and it's always that use of challenge as a way to drop weight on a timeline, I have massive issues. Like I have further issues when the same people who are making money off a message about loving your body are making money off telling women they're better off when they drop three dress sizes in 12 weeks. You cannot have it both ways, so pick a side. Yeah, I totally agree. I just It doesn't make sense to me. I get doing 12-week challenges. If you're one of those girls listening to this who does the F45 challenge, whatever, go for it. You do you. I don't like it when we're trying to package it as one thing, when really we all know it's another. You're posting people's weight loss and you're posting their before and after photos for a very specific reason. You can call it body positivity. You can tell people that you're trying to show them how much their mind has changed and how much their perspective on the world is enhanced by your program. But what we're seeing is weight loss. And what we're seeing that's, is a very t- stereotypical narrative from the weight loss industry and, and from the fitness industry. And that's why they're posting it on Instagram because Instagram is a visual platform. Like it is designed for the before and after photo. 
I have a bone to pick too with the Australian women's media landscape with regards to how they handle the body positivity movement too. There's such a movement with Australian women's media to blindly celebrate much of the body positivity movement that exists on Instagram without analysis or critique even. It's almost a bit sycophantic sometimes, some headlines, and I don't know if I'm being too dramatic about this, about how some publications write around an Instagram post about body positivity, hailing it as like the best thing to happen to all women. Is it? Like, are they the best thing to happen to all women? Some are good for sure. And I'm not saying that there is not space online for good, strong, body positive messages. Like there absolutely is. And we need it on a place like Instagram where everything is perfectly photoshopped. It's absolutely our responsibility to dig deeper into messages of body positivity. That if Karina Irby is posting a wonderful message about body positivity, why are we all blindly ignoring the idea that she makes money off 12-week transformations? Mm. It speaks to this real dumbing down of women's media, like the absolutism of women's media. And I don't know, again, once again, if that's too harsh, but I have joked on the podcast before that I always eye roll, and so do you, when we see a headline that says something like, X had this goals message about Y and now she's our hero. Like, is she? Yes, it was probably a good message, but can we introduce a bit of detail here? Can we have a bit of nuance to our headline? It's not doing anybody any favours. Because particularly on the Instagram body positivity movement, I think it's encouraging unhelpful behavior if they're the headlines are running around it. Totally. And if we're telling women that exercise should be for their minds and their well-being and their overall health, why are we at the same time championing this idea that we need to exercise for aesthetic reasons? Because Karina Irby on one hand is telling us exercise for your brain and on the other hand saying you can grow your bum and make it look peachy and make it look like this Instagram ideal by doing X, Y, Z, buy my resistance bands, do these programs, eat these foods. That is still a message about fitness and women's bodies. That is not about living a full life. That is not about going out and living the happiest life you can. That is about aesthetics and what women look like. So that doesn't matter. Like it actually doesn't marry again. And I will go out and say, I'll go out on a limb and say that I feel just as ostracized by messaging that tells me that my bum should look a certain way as I do about my my waist looking a certain way or my stomach looking a certain way. It's the same thing. Just we've now morphed it to act like it's so much better. Like guys, instead of having a flat tummy, now you just need to have this perfect Instagrammable peachy ass. It feels like spin doctors have taken over the body positivity movement and attached it to exercise. And I feel a bit gaslighted by the whole thing because there are these people who feel like they are doing such good for the world. And let me come back again. There is so much good to be done in the body positive space and there is so much good being done. But I do take issue with the oversimplified Instagrammable body positive message that's completely at odds with somebody else's business model. Totally. And people might be listening to this and asking, well, you guys work with Keeper Cleaner. You guys are good friends with those girls. And we are. I actually love Keeper Cleaner because when I wrote that program with those girls as their copywriter, it doesn't include anything about weight loss. So there is a distinct difference here. It doesn't include anything about 12-week challenges or doing as much as you can in a short amount of time. It's about just having a consistently healthy lifestyle across the year, including meditation, including Pilates, including yoga, including any kind of activity that helps you live the life you want to live. Yeah, well, it's about well-being and your mind. And I think that's what we keep coming back to. I'm very, very sorry to all the fans of Karina Irby, and I'm sure she does a lot of good work. And I think she does. I just think there is a 
blatant contradiction in a lot of what's happening right now. And it can be recalibrated. Like it can 1000% be recalibrated. I think Karina Irby has done a lot of great work in this space. And I think she's introduced a lot of women to great body positive messages. And I think she can recalibrate while she's got the audience, but it's important that she does now. Totally. I think you can absolutely advocate for a healthy and active lifestyle and advocate for beauty at all sizes. But as soon as you veer into 12 week challenge and weight loss comparison territory, you have veered off track. And you've lost me. Totally. For people who do want to see a really great body positivity campaign for a little bit of a light spin, actually check out Isle of Paradise and Jules Von Hepp. We posted a photo about this on our Instagram page. And I just think this is body positivity done right. It is not ableist. It is not uh, confined to one race. It is diverse and it is beautiful and it is happy and it is vibrant. And I really, really love Isle it's, of Paradise for releasing this body posy movement. It's a wonderful campaign. The images are beautiful too, like so eye-catching. Mm. So I would very much recommend it because I think you can also make money off body positivity, to be totally honest. Yeah, it can be two th- It can be helpful and commercially viable at once. Totally. Just don't sell us a lie. Exactly. Hey, I think that's all you have time for today. Michelle, do you have anything you want to say to wrap the episode? No, we love you guys. Thanks for supporting us. <laughs> I only asked because I've just gone completely blank. Um, if you guys want to come and join the Facebook group, 20 other thousand women are in there. English. This is absolutely the point where I lose my marbles (laughs) if I didn't lose them an hour ago. There are 20,000 women in there. We would love to have you in there. It is Shameless Podcast Community. We are also on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. And I don't know what else you just said. I tuned out. She absolutely tuned out. I saw you looking through the window. Um, (laughs) Thank you again. (laughs) We love you guys. Wait, I'll try and guess what you didn't say. Um... Uh, we're also on Facebook. No, I've done that one. Shit. Hey, we will see you guys on <laughs> Thursday for an in conversation. In the meantime, be good and do, do good, good things. things. <laughs> oh my god, go grow that butt. <laughs> Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.